Uh, <clears throat> yeah, good to see you. And uh, we're looking at Isaiah 40 to 55, which is one long pole. And uh, two weeks ago, we did that matchless introduction, Comfort, Comfort by People, uh, Isaiah 41 to 11. And last week, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. And after those two absolutely extraordinary passages that just beg to be preached, right? They're, they're like purple passages. Every preacher loves to preach those two passages. Well, after that comes this passage here in uh, Isaiah 41 and 42, particularly 42, 1 to 9. And uh, it is, oh, did anyone else think that when we were reading it? Gosh, my goodness. Um, so now we've hit the big time, essentially. This is the main game of Isaiah 40 to 55. We see the first of the servant songs. And there's nothing more exciting than this. Um, there are four so-called servant songs in Isaiah 40 to 55, in chapter 42, 49, 50 and 53. Uh, these four are the greatest prophecies of the coming Messiah written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. And I want to look at this first one, Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9, but I just want to look at the first four verses um, because they're so incredibly important for, for our understanding of what God, who God is and what he does through Jesus. Um, so we've got to spend time going very carefully through these four verses and they are just super, 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 super encouraging. Um, now, by way of introduction, the person or persons described in these servant songs is one who will carry out the purposes of God for Israel and for the world and bring comfort, the comfort that Isaiah has already announced in chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. The word servant in the Old Testament means somebody who is at the disposal of another. We see a good example of that in Genesis 24 that we saw earlier this year. Abraham sends his servant to find a, a wife for Isaac. And this servant is a cool dude, let me say, and I love his servitude. Incredible guy. And uh, so the task of a servant is to carry out the will of another person, to do their work, to represent their interests. And so the word servant is used as a representative of a king, but also the worshippers of a god, uh, whether the true god or the false gods of the ancient world. Uh, people who followed those gods regarded themselves as servants of that God in an in a, in a intimate relationship with that God <clears throat> and uh, complete obedience to that God was the idea. And we find in Isaiah 40 to 55, God has many servants. Like Cyrus, <clears throat> the Persian emperor, is described as the servant of the Lord in chapter 44, verse 28. We'll look at that next week. But the servant described here in chapter 42 and the subsequent references is contrasted with the other servants of God. Uh, for example, the fact that the spirit of the Lord is upon him and also that he has a different task than Cyrus or other servants. And the way he goes about his work is so radically different. Um, Cyrus, for example, unknowingly served God through military conquest. But in Isaiah 42, this servant's way of working is so, so, so different to that. And so although this term servant is used to describe quite a number of different people that God uses um, to accomplish his purposes, this servant here in Isaiah 42 
is so different to them all. Who is this servant? The identity of the servant has puzzled scholars for millennia. I hope you realise this. It's been debated and debated and debated and debated. For example, if you look at Isaiah 41 verse 8, Israel is described as my servant. If you turn to Isaiah 49 verse 3, the second of the servant songs, the servant is identified explicitly with Israel. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendour. And yet as we work through these servant passages, Isaiah 40, 49, 50 and 53, many of the characteristics of a servant could only be said of an individual. Like when we get to Isaiah 53, the most gobsmackingly famous and incredible passage of all. Um, that passage can only refer to an individual and not simply to Israel. And in Isaiah 49 verse 3 it says, You are my servant Israel, and yet in verse 6, You will restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those in Israel. So in the first part of that passage, the servant is Israel. Then three verses later, the servant has a ministry to Israel. And then as we get further on, as I've said, in chapter 50 and 53, we see the servant is highly personalised. And so in the 19th century, a famous Old Testament scholar named Franz uh, Delich uh, said that the word servant is being used in an increasingly narrow way. It's like an hourglass, he said. Um, at the beginning, the top of the hourglass, at its broadest level, it describes Israel. Uh, narrowing down to refer, secondly, to the righteous within Israel, and then coming to the point, the centre of the hourglass, to one person, Jesus Christ the Messiah. And so we get applications gradually, gradually narrowing down, and then in the New Testament, the hourglass broadens out again. For example, Paul and Barnabas quote a passage about the servant in Isaiah 49 to refer to their own ministry as apostles. Um, so I think Franz is right in, about his hourglass. Um, the ministry of the servant refers broadly to Israel, then narrows down to focus supremely on Jesus Christ the Messiah, and then broadens out to include at least some of the apostles and perhaps others as well. So I hope that helps you understand this issue. So this servant has similarities to other servants of the Lord, yet he is radically different and this centres right on the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And these servant songs in Isaiah are repeatedly, repeatedly, right through the New Testament, um, used to refer to Jesus. Let's look now at the portrait here of this servant of the Lord. Isaiah 42, 1 to 4, sorry. Six points. You ready? God's choice of the servant. <clears throat> Notice this portrait of the servant is presented by God himself. This is what the Lord says about his servant. And we need to listen carefully to this to line up our lives against what God says. The passage opens with an interjection, verse 1, Behold my servant. The, new, new, uh, the NIV says, Here is my servant. That's a bit weak. The word is behold in the Hebrew. It means take a look, pause, stop. This, this servant is worth looking at. Spend some time. Have a look at my servant. And this follows from the previous chapter, chapter 41, where God summons the peoples of the world for a cont contest between the idols and the true God, and God ushers them into his courtroom. 
And it's this massive slam of idols in chapter 41. They're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. You have to nail them in place or they'll fall over. You know, and the Hebrew in 41 verse 29, the last verse of chapter 41. Behold, their images are empty wind. Their idols are empty wind. And that behold sets us up for chapter 42. Behold the idols. They can do absolutely nothing. And then God says, now behold my servant whom I uphold in whom I delight. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. We need to behold him. He's described uh, first as my servant. God himself says he's in a close relationship with this servant. He's my servant. We're told God holds him firmly. His hand is continuously upon his servant. Um, This means that this servant has God's favour resting on him. And uh, this means that as he carries out his tasks as a servant, as he fulfils his calling and continues his ministry, God's hand is continually upholding him. It's not the idea that God picks him up if he falls over, but rather God continuously has a grasp of his servant as he carries out his work. He's also described as my chosen one. Now the word chosen is used all over the Old Testament and New to describe Israel, God's chosen people. Likewise, this servant is singularly marked out by the living God as the one who is set apart, chosen by God, for a particular task. And he has this tremendous obligation as one who God has elected and chosen uh, and equipped to do a particular thing. And there are so many passages in the New Testament that talk about God's choice and election of Israel and God's choice and election of particularly the Messiah, who is the true Israel. Notice also this servant is one whom God delights in. Remember Mark chapter 1 verse 11, those famous words at Jesus' baptism. The voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. That second part of that thing that God says at Jesus' baptism comes from Isaiah 42 verse 1. (laughs) Uh, That's where it's taken from. Uh, My chosen one in whom I delight. That's declared over Jesus. And again, the English translations are a bit weak. The Hebrew here says, in whom my soul delights. It's a way of saying God's whole being takes great pleasure uh, in his people Israel, his chosen, and preeminently in Jesus Christ, his chosen. Uh, And that's a tremendous encouragement because if I'm right that the words of these servant passages uh, refer indirectly to even us today as God's servants um, who represent Jesus Christ. If that is true, then it would be right to say that God says these same words over us. uh, My servants whom I have chosen, in whom I take great delight. My soul greatly delights in you, my people. Um, Now, we may not take that directly, of course, from Isaiah chapter 42, but certainly Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where in the opening verses we're told that God graciously has chosen each of us and graciously given us great blessing in the heavenly realms uh, in and through the one he loves. And he has lavishly poured his love on us through 
Jesus. So we are included in this delight that the Father has for his servant. And Jesus pondered these words from Isaiah 42, particularly after his baptism where they were announced over him. And he knew, therefore, that he was marked out to do the work of this particular servant outlined in Isaiah 42, 49, 50 and 53. He knew that that was his calling. And he knew that he would be upheld by his father, that his father uh, has great delight in him and was holding on to him as he did it. This would have been a great comfort to Jesus and a great comfort to us as well, who are in that same kind of relationship with God. So that's the first aspect of the servant, his choice by God, God's delight in him and God upholding him. The second is the spirit's equipping of the servant. Now, the servant's task could be described in a variety of ways. His role is prophetic, yes. It's also kingly because uh, what he does uh, is royal functions. But it's interesting here that God places his spirit upon his servant. If we turn to Isaiah 11, verse 2, we're told the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Apparently, the servant's ministry cannot be accomplished without the spirit. And so the one who is chosen to be this servant is equipped by God's spirit for the tasks that he has to do. His ministry will be accomplished in and through God's spirit. And it's interesting, the Spirit descends upon Jesus as he's baptised and as those words are spoken over him. Yeah, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. In fact, only a couple of verses later in Luke 4.1, we see that Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and where for 40 days he's tempted by Satan. In other words, the Spirit comes on Jesus to empower him for his ministry as the servant. And then in Luke 4, verse 18, Jesus quotes Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says in the synagogue, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. Jesus explicitly identifies himself with this servant of Isaiah. So the second aspect of this servant is his possession of the spirit. The language here indicates that the Spirit is given to him as an abiding possession, not just something given for a time and then taken, but a permanent endowment. This is not the Spirit that is temporary, but forever with his Son, this servant. And when we turn to the New Testament, we see Jesus is the man of the Spirit par excellence. Um, and if we go right through his ministry, the climax is resurrection and ascension, is where he himself pours out that spirit on all who follow him and put their faith in him. Uh, he is the one who gives the spirit. So the spirit of the Lord is upon him. Thirdly, the mission of the servant. He will bring justice to the nations, verse 1. The mission of the servant is to bring justice to the world. So what does this justice mean? Establishing justice is the task of a king. It's an authoritative edict. Also, the word justice here is referring to the law court context that Isaiah has been talking about in the previous chapter, chapter 41, where the nations are brought into the court of God and judged. And it's shown that their thinking needs to be changed and corrected. Judgment is laid down. 
because their understanding of the nature of God is so wrong and they worship idols. So justice here has to do with the authoritative announcement that the nations of the world who worship idols are totally wrong and that they need to repent and return to the true God. Um, so there's this mark of judgment that, that is included in this justice that the servant will bring. He will judge and put things right. And it's something that's positive and negative. Think of Jesus' mission. It was a mission, ministry of building up but also tearing down, rooting out what is false um, and correcting it, righting wrongs and establishing a new order, a new justice, um, a new just order. So the mission of the servant, in one sense, is a mission of bringing salvation to the nations. But it includes judgment, which will come through this servant. Um, judgment of all that is false and destructive of human flourishing. Now, we mustn't simply jump to the fact that the gospel is going to go out into the world. That, that this justice that this servant brings is not simply the gospel, or let's not jump there too quickly, because... Justice here is this idea that the nations will stand under, ju under judgment. Um, and judgment means that uh, the way is then clear for the salvation that the servant brings to come. So what is the task of the servant? It's judgment and salvation. And broadly, that is the justice that he brings. And notice at the end, verse 4, in his teaching... The islands will put their hope. The islands, the far-flung places. The, it's another way of saying the whole world will put their hope in his teaching. But that word teaching there is his law, right? So it's again, it's this justice kind of context. But law is not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's a just order that he will bring to the world. That his saving of the world includes bringing in a just way to live a just way that society will be set up which will bring healing and flourishing and shalom and peace and goodness to all. And in that justice, in that teaching of this servant, the whole world will put their hope. So the mission of the servant is related to the nations but it's to bring justice, a, world, a new world order, um, a just and right world created through judgment and salvation. Then the next point is verses 2 and 3, the servant's manner of working. Now this is extremely cool. And when we look at these words closely, we see that although at one level you could apply them to Israel, on another level, gosh, they could only refer to Jesus Christ. <laughs> Seven negatives are used to contrast this servant with other would-be servants. Um, we saw earlier Cyrus is God's servant. He was a military kind of servant of God, but this servant completely different. Verse 2, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. This tells us something about his way of working. The servant uh, stands in contrast to for, to, for instance, Cyrus, the military ruler who flashes across the world almost not touching his feet on the ground, so quickly does he conquer the world, the Persian ruler. But this servant does not work in that way at all. 
And we're told he doesn't cry out or raise his voice. That is, he doesn't go around promoting himself in high places. Now, in one sense, the ministry of Jesus is prophetic. He did cry out. But here, the servant's manner of working is contrasted to the prophet's. He does not cry out or raise his voice. His manner of appearing is quiet. He's gentle. He's humble. His manner of working is opposed to the lying teachers who endeavour to exalt themselves by noisy demonstrations. He does not seek his own status. He denies himself. And what he says and what he does commends itself. So his ministry requires no force or trumpeting or anything like that or violence or military endeavour. Notice how he deals with the downtrodden. Verse 3, it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. This servant is a true pastor. He's a shepherd. He doesn't just deal with the nation, Israel as a whole, or the nations as a whole. Notice how his patience with individuals is described. A bruised reed he will not break. This is a way of saying what is cracked, what is half cracked, he will not destroy This picture is of something that is cracked and ready to disintegrate. Um, And the task of those who seek the high places of the earth, positions of importance, they might be very tempted to push aside those who are half broken or cracked, but not this servant. He will not do that. Those who are cracked and are half broken already are the kinds of people He will not break. This speaks about the ministry of Jesus. As I've said, the language here is highly personalised and I think in the final sense can only apply to Jesus. It may have secondary reference to Israel, but it applies supremely to Jesus. And if the hourglass metaphor is right, it would be fair to say that from the New Testament that if we carry on the ministry of servanthood of Jesus, then this applies in a secondary sense to us as well. For example, have you noticed how often in certain types of church work, in order to get things done, Christians will push aside others? Have you noticed that in Christian institutions or churches or congregations, those people who have tremendous drive and initiative will sweep aside others in the process, particularly others who are broken or who are half broken and bruised? And I can think of many circumstances where certain people, Christian people, were actually pushed aside and pushed away in order to achieve certain tasks. I hope this will never be the case with SOMA. That in order to execute our plans that we might have for outreach or growth or various areas of teaching or instruction, that we will not lose sight of what is said here, a bruised reed, he will not break. There are far too many people whose lives have been further bruised and wrecked by the way that they've been treated by other Christians. Like I hear, I heard this week of some missionaries overseas who returned from overseas and their lives had been cracked, in a sense, in their service of God overseas and have never really recovered from it, partly because... They were not extended the care and the concern and the love and the right hand of fellowship when they returned, which might have enabled them 
to overcome some of those problems that they faced. Well, this servant would never overlook such a person. A bruised reed. He will not break. Uh, And then, not only are we told a bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Now the smouldering wick, the same word is used in 1 Samuel 3 verse 2 to describe Eli's failing eyesight. Interestingly, uh, Eli's feeble eyesight is almost burned out. And here God says, this servant will not snuff out that smouldering wick. Later in verse 7, as we read earlier, we see examples of this. He will be a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So that's later in this first servant song. Both these illustrations, a bruised reed which is half-cracked, and a smouldering wick, which is the one who is failing or faltering, indicate that the servant will never give up on someone like the most abandoned outcast, the most enslaved captive, or someone with great physical limitations, or someone weary and almost spent, or someone weighed down by sin and shame. The servant's manner of working means his care and gentleness doesn't give up on such people. He does not write them off. This is amazing. His ministry has to do with the truth of God. Yes. He comes in judgment. Yes. He declares what is wrong and what is right. Yes. But he does his ministry in such a way Um, And he goes about his task in such a way that a bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. It's extraordinary to see how Jesus brings these two things together. His absolute commitment to announcing the truth, the judgment of God on human sin and error, but at the same time a bruised reed he will not break. I pray that the church will be able to bring those two things together on all of the delicate issues that we have before us, whether it's gender identity or or whatever it is, Uh, that the church will be known for people who do have a truth to declare, but also are so careful in the way that we treat people who are experiencing these things that we'll be known as the people who are bruised reed we will not break and a smouldering wick we will not snuff out. And while I don't think that we can simply take this servant passage and apply it willy-nilly to ourselves, nonetheless there's obviously a further application for us here. Um, Glenda and I talked about, well, who does this remind us of? And uh, Stuart, you did come to mind (laughs) as a good example of this. Um, Stuart doesn't bruise and crush and snuff others out. He gently comes alongside other Christian leaders across the world to build them up and he brings justice. He brings a better way to do things uh, that's thought through and that brings flourishing. And he uses his strength to strengthen the weak. Check out his local leaders' international website, which is his ministry. Um, 
So that's, that's one example, and I hope that you have many that you can call to mind, where you see these two things coming together. And I also think of just how Jesus has dealt with me, uh, with all my oddity or different things or issues or things that I've... Well, he's just so, been so careful in drawing me into a healthier way to be over many years of patience with me. The fifth point is the servant's absolute constancy. Verse 4, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. With all the effort that this servant expends, he might, uh, we might think he'll exhaust himself completely <laughs> and fall over in a heap. We might think that because of the great patience that he requires, he will not be able to go, carry through with his ministry right to the end. But it's interesting where it says a bruised reed, he will not break. The word bruised is the same word translated here in verse 4 as discouraged. And the word for smouldering is the same word in the original as the word to falter. So in verse 3, we're told the servant will not break that which is cracked. He will not snuff out that which smoulders. But in verse 4, we're told that he will not crack up himself and that he will not burn out himself. The same words that we use to describe the people he cares for in their feeble and weakened condition are used with reference to this servant. This servant does not so give himself to ministry and so exhaust himself that he cracks up or burns out. And I take it that the reason is that the Spirit is equipping him and empowering him for his ministry. This servant carries through his task with to complete success because of the Spirit's help. Uh, and he can do it no matter what the opposition, no matter how difficult it is to work with people who are bruised and cracked and almost extinguished. Yet the Spirit gives him great, great patience and great, great wisdom and great, great love to carry on and to bring these people to health and hope. Nothing will crack this servant or break his strength. Nothing will extinguish him. And again, we can't help but think of the absolute constancy of Jesus, his ministry, his suffering, and his death on the cross. He was absolutely constant to the very end. Did you see the seven negatives? Not shout, not cry out, not raise his voice, not break a bruised reed, not snuff out a smouldering wick, not falter and not be discouraged. And then the final point, verse uh, number six, the servant's final and complete success. He does not break, he does not crack till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. The servant carries through his task to its full and utter completion. It says here, the islands will put their hope in his teaching. This doesn't just mean that the nations will put their faith in the gospel. It does mean that. But firstly, it's a picture of the bankruptcy of what is available in the nations. They may not even be aware of what they are hungry for. But it suggests there's a vacuum, a bankruptcy, a hole that needs to be filled in this world. And there's a sense in which only the servant's justice his teaching, his new world order, his judgment and salvation, his death on the cross, resurrection and giving of the spirit. All of that is what this world is hungry, hungry for. 
And only this teaching will meet and properly answer the entire world's needs. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight.